0: Amen. Please uh, rise if you are not yet and, and go to your Bibles, specifically 1 Samuel 6. We will be reading all of 1 Samuel 6 and going into chapter 7 up to verse 2 in chapter 7. That is 1 Samuel 6 for our sermon passage this evening, For Samuel 6, starting in verse 1, going to 1 Samuel 7, verse 2. Again, this is God's word. Please give it your full attention. The Ark of Yahweh was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, "'What shall we do with the Ark of Yahweh? Tell us what with what we shall send it to its place.' They said, "'If you send away the Ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering.'" Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we should return to him? I answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on all your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods... And your land, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord, and place it on the cart, and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off, and let it go its way, and watch if it goes up on the way to its own land to Beth Shemesh. Then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so, and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart, and shut up their calves at home and they put the ark of Yahweh on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors and the cows went straight in the direction of Bethshemesh along one highway lowing as they went they turned neither to the right nor to the left and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Bethshemesh now the people of Bethshemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark they rejoiced to see it the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to Yahweh. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Bethshemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to Yahweh. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the, the Ark of Yahweh is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Bethshemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of Yahweh. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned, because Yahweh had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? And whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of Yahweh. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of Yahweh and brought it to the house of, of Aminadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the ark of Yahweh. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after Yahweh. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Sometimes things are just weird and there's no getting around it. Ancient and modern pagan practices are sometimes just head-scratchers. Shivambu, the Hindu practice of drinking urine, the ancient Greek practice of killing birds and telling the future with their entrails, are baffling. Ancient pagan practices are just strange sometimes, and we have one in our own passage today. In fact, two things best kept unglorified through gold were enshrined in gold, tumors of the groin and mice. Although I guess we're even weirder today, in fact, because as recent as 2007, some human fecal matter was dipped in gold sold, and was sold for half a million dollars as a piece of art, quote-unquote, Sometimes things are just weird. It's usually in pagan religions, but it's all over the place. But usually in pagan religions, these things come out because pagan practices really are just a hodgepodge of what people are thinking might be a good thing to do at one time or another to escape and to mollify the gods somehow. In the same way, the Philistines did what was good in their own mind and made golden tumors of mice for Yahweh, the God of Israel. You see, the Philistines had gotten themselves into a pickle in our passage. They don't want to lose face by sending the Ark back to Israel, but they also don't want to die a horrible death from this almighty God in their midst. Decisions, decisions, these people. What was to be done? Well, the masters of these odd practices to manipulate the gods and to escape them came to the Philistines' rescue as the priests and the diviners, as we see in verse 2. But we see in this passage not only the Philistines trying to escape from God himself through their wild and wacky practices, but we also see the Israelites trying to escape from God's wrath, although he has graciously come back to Israel by his own power in this passage. This is a passage of escape, escape from God, although in two very different ways, with two very different reasons and two very different guilt sacrifices. Well, before we get to Israel and to the misadventures of the Ark in the land of promise, let's examine the Philistines' attempted escape from God himself in chapter 6, verses 1 through 12 and verse 16. The Philistines' attempted escape from God through coincidence. Here's the question that they pose in verse 3. What shall we do with the Ark of Yahweh? Now, they don't just ask the priests of Dagon this question, the fortune tellers this question. They say, secondly, a command to them, which is what they really mean. Tell us with what we shall do, what, with what we shall send it to its place. They're fed up with death, and they've decided to get this thing out. Just tell us how to do it. It's already been seven months in their land. This is what they really want, and they're not asking for it. It seems curious on the surface, however, that they would go to these diviners and priests and not to their next-door neighbor, Israel, and ask, because they seemingly would know how to do these things, to know how to handle the Ark. But the misunderstanding priests rightly say in this verse, verse 3, that they ought to send the Ark back with a guilt offering. This much they got right. But then they wrongly say in verses 4 through 5, the guilt offering is to be five golden tumors and five golden mice instead of the female lamb or goat that the actual ceremony of the guilt offering called for. Yet for all that, for all that, they understand Israelite history just fine. So they know to send it back to Israel instead of destroy it or something else. The priests say in verse 6, Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away, and they departed? It is strange, though, that they thought that God could be mollified with money, that sin could be atoned for by money. For all that, the priests tell them to send the ark away not in the simple way of Pharaoh. They do it in the most experimental way possible. Verse 7 and following says this, Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them, and take the ark of Yahweh, and place it on the cart, and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off, and let it go its way, and watch. If it goes up on its way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not... And we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened by coincidence. Isn't it interesting? Even after all the proof that these people got in chapter 5, the Philistines are still unsure if the plague is God's doing or whether it's just a coincidence. We see how self contradictory the Philistines are here. God proved to them, and they actually say, his hand is heavy against us in chapter 5 repeatedly, and even in verses 3 through 4 of this very passage. But in the same breath, the priests and future tellers of the Philistines say, you know, maybe it was coincidence. Let's do an experiment just to be sure. We see in this passage a most helpful lesson for us Christians when dealing with unbelievers, and even our own mind, unfortunately something many of us Christians remember about ourselves before coming to Christ. For an unbeliever, when there are conclusions or facts that he does not like, he makes chance his refuge. We see this in the Philistines, and we see this in many ancient cultures, in fact, and we see it in atheists of our own day. They are all of the same kind, looking to coincidence. Did you know that the Norse actually believed that life came as a matter of chance in a very similar manner of the modern myth of the Big Bang. Really, as the Philistines prove here, there is nothing new under the sun. A a plague that follows the ark, city by city, for seven months? It might be coincidence. That there is something rather than nothing? Coincidence. At some point, you just have to recognize that it's not coincidence. But how far do you go before you're certain? That it is coincidence or not coincidence. This continues as a problem in atheism today. How can we be sure that gravity has not been a cosmic coincidence over time? Ultimately, here's the rub of this recourse in man to coincidence. If man is the measure of all things, he can never be certain. If man is the measure of all things, he can never be certain about any one thing ever. So everything is equally possible as everything else. This is very convenient for a pagan and one way. As these Philistines show, they can simply dismiss anything as a coincidence over and over again. However, it is a double-edged sword. Now everything means nothing because you can't be sure there is a cause and effect at all. You can't be certain about anything, and you can't learn from anything, certainly, because avoiding one thing doesn't make another thing less possible. Everything is equally possible if all is chance. Perhaps tomorrow gravity will cease, and the whole gravitational theory was just a coincidence. If man is the judge, as atheists claim, he does not have comprehensive knowledge. So man can never know anything with certainty. How convenient in this situation for the Philistines. God beyond time, beyond space, the creator and sustainer of the universe who is the true measure of all things. This God had proven himself, without a doubt, these pagans as the author of the plague and the victor over Dagon. Yet these pagans always have recourse to chance, even thousands of years ago, because they say to themselves, I will be the final judge of that. Well, in our passage, we not only learn the illegitimate recourse unbelievers of every age have to coincidence for things of God that they do not like, we also learn that God will stop at nothing to show them that they are foolish for their foolish recourse to chance for so certain a thing is God's sovereignty, because he does so here in our passage. Taking two milk cows with newly born calves, the Philistines put the ark on a cart and yoke the cows and bring the calves away from them and set the cows up at a crossroads. The Philistines are stacking the deck here against God. The cows will want to go back to their young, and they've never borne a yoke, so they will try to throw off this yoke if they can. That would certainly be what they would do normally. But instead of going back home to their calves, as they would certainly do, these cows, verse 12 says, went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, a city of priests, along one highway, lowing as they went. These cows did not go by chance. They were impelled to go straight to Beth Shemesh, verse 12, even lowing in protest as they went the whole way. It was God's control over them who causes the ark to go straight, as if by GPS, to a city filled with Levitical priests who could take care of the ark accordingly. Notice how incredible the Philistines, how... how, Crazy the Philistines' reaction is, this amazing proof of God's power and the other innumerable proofs of all of their disasters being from God's plan. We see this in verse 16, their reaction. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Nothing happens, nothing at all. They do nothing, no repentance, no sorrow for sin, no exclaiming the results of their experiment for God's glory. They just lick their wounds and say to their actions, well, hey, I'm I'm glad we escaped that. So these Philistines prove their rebellion against God. They will not take proof. Yet, thankfully, the Israelites do not consider the return of the ark as a coincidence like the Philistines. They rejoice at the return of the ark as we see in verse 13 and following. And although God is certainly merciful towards the Israelites here in this exchange, he impressed upon Israel their need for an eternal, ultimate escape as well. Escape from his wrath. So, second, Israel's escape from God's wrath through God's provided sacrifice. Israel's reception of the ark, by contrast, is wonderful. It's joyous. Finally, good news in Israel Verse 13, the Israelites rejoiced to see the ark. And when the ark miraculously stopped in a man's field near a great stone, this city of Levites got straight to work. They, verse 14, split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now these two sacrificed cows, which God provided, are very, very important, and we will return to them later. Still, while splitting up the wood of the cart, verse 15, the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and sat them on the great stone and sat all the other offerings on the great stone. In addition to the cows already sacrificed, the man of Beth Shemesh then offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to Yahweh. This is a very encouraging reception. And after a quick catalog of the golden mice and of the golden tumors in the box, and pointing people to go see that great rock, which is still there, the writing of this history, a very strange thing happens. At least, it may seem strange to us. God judges the men of Beth Shemesh, even after this great reception. Verse 19 gives the reason for looking into the ark of Yahweh. He then struck down 70 men of Beth Shemesh, and the people mourned because Yahweh had struck the people with a great blow. Rightfully, the men of Beth Shemesh ask in verse 20 to this, Who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? What's happening? They're wondering. Israel is confused and asking good questions. I thought we'd escaped God's wrath. What gives? In response to this, they wisely send it to another city, kiryat Jirim. They send it here, since Shiloh, as far as we can tell, has already been destroyed at this point, and kiryat Jirim is close to Shiloh, where the priests of the tabernacle were, and wisely charged a Levite, Eleazar, to have charge of the Ark of Yahweh in chapter 7, verse 1. And all the house of Israel, verse 2, lamented after Yahweh. Here's the point, after all of that story, where the Philistines and all the foolish pagans, whom we all once were, attempted to escape God himself through various means, especially trying to find the way of escaping God through chance and coincidence, Israel did not try to escape God. They loved God and tried to escape his wrath instead. To escape his wrath instead, at least temporarily. In our passage, Israel had partly escaped God's wrath. Was it because they had the right combination of sacrifices and Levites at Beth Shemesh? Do they follow the Levitical law precisely in order to escape God's wrath for a moment after he punished Israel for being too familiar with him by killing 70 men? How did they escape God's wrath for a moment? It was God's work. God did not hear and does not ever let his salvation be up to the chance or mere actions of his people. He himself acts and he himself provides what he demands. He himself acts and provides what he demands. We see this principle in our own passage with the very important two heifers that God provided in verse 14. This offering was not part of the sacrificial law. We had uh, Numbers 19 read, or at least 1 through 6 before, and the closest parallel is there the law of purification of the ceremonial unclean, which used one red heifer, one red heifer, killed outside the camp. But even this was a heifer that had never had a yoke upon it. And these two cows now had a yoke upon them with this cart. What's going on with this sacrifice? Why did the Israelites sacrifice this if they were not supposed to, if it were not within the Mosaic law? Why would God accept this sacrifice? It wasn't this sacrifice that he was angry about. If it is not part of the ceremonial law, why did he take it? It was a sacrifice which God himself provided Israel to take away their guilt. It was a God-appointed provision, the God-appointed sacrifice to take away guilt of their sins, that he might dwell among them again. Even if it was not in the ceremonial law, it was given of God for that purpose, and therefore it was appropriate. God provided the appropriate sacrifice Another time, although it was not in the Mosaic law explicitly, no human sacrifice was even allowed in Mosaic law. In fact, if someone sacrificed a human, they were worthy of death. But we see in scripture as well that this sacrifice of two milk cows, let alone millions of oxen, are not enough to escape God's wrath. No, for says Hebrews 10, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This only Christ's sacrifice, the God-man, can do God's provided sacrifice for the guilt offering that we might have communion with him again. This was the sacrifice which was not in the Mosaic law, but was acceptable to God because of all the law and the prophets which pointed to this sacrifice on the cross. Here we see a sacrifice not in the Mosaic law, but because it was provided by God himself, It is acceptable. Not only did Christ's sacrifice truly take away our guilt and bring us into fellowship with God again after we sinned against him, just like Israel, when we are united to Adam, but did what was far more, purchased our eternal righteousness before him so that we can never be judged like the 70 men of Beth Shemesh, even after this sacrifice. No longer are we judged for getting too close to God. No longer are we punished with death for our lack of righteousness when we enter into God's presence. Because we have faith in Christ, we have righteousness. It was with stories like this in mind that Paul penned these words in Ephesians 3. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. How often do we doubt these words? We run from God when we sin. Do we expect him to strike us down as he did the Philistines or strike us down as he did even the Israelites here? Or do we look to Christ? Do not run from God, brothers and sisters. Do not consider him far away and inaccessible. The curtain of the temple, which kept the ark of God's presence away from the common man, was torn in two After Christ's sacrifice, unlike the Israelites here after the sacrifice of God's first temporary sacrifice of the two cows he provided, we have boldness of access into his eternal bliss by the eternal sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who willingly sacrificed himself. Do not neglect to pray to him, for he loves you. He sacrificed even his own self for you. Will he strike you down if you draw near to him? His sacrifice was our provision to take away the guilt of our sin. But his resurrection and life purchased our righteousness and life, eternal life. In his death, our sins die. In his life, we have a perfect, spotless, righteous life. And therefore, boldness of access to God. Jesus Christ, the righteous one of God's chosen provision, took our sin in exchange and exchanged and us, gave us righteousness in exchange. So, brothers and sisters, we may answer the question, in fact, of the people of Beth Shemesh. Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? In ourselves, we would die just as the people of Philistia and Israel did, but clothed in the blood of Christ. God's chosen sacrifice, we have boldness to enter. Who is able to stand? Only Christ. But who is able to be in his presence? Those in Christ. We may never escape God, as the Philistines foolishly tried to do, for he is God, and he sustains all things. We may never escape God's wrath through the paltry sacrifices that we bring. No, we must escape God's wrath only through the sacrifices which God brings. In the fullness of time, Jesus Christ our Lord, which God provided Trust in him, brothers and sisters, and do not run from God. But even if you do, be assured that God will pursue his people. Even if you are unworthy, just as Israel was, and not let them escape his own love, but bring them to salvation himself. Jesus Christ, our Lord, let us go to him in prayer. We thank you, Lord, that we have been brought to the sacrifice which bought our peace. We thank you, Lord, that you provided a sacrifice that you say in Ephesians 2, not but man or even but David, but but God because of your great mercy. We thank you, Lord, you have provided what you require. Lord, that it is not by our initiative, but by yours that we have salvation and boldness of access to the throne of grace. Lord, we thank you that you have always dwelt with your people by your promise, but in such a great way now. We thank you that we can come to you even daily, but Lord, we pray that we would not like those, even those Israelites, think that this is a small thing and look upon our communion with you as if it were a small thing. We pray, Lord, that we would come to you with fear and trembling, knowing that were it not for Christ's righteousness, we would be struck down, even as these Israelites and Philistines. But give us greater trust in Christ and his sacrifice and his life until that day when we shall see him as he is in the new heavens and the new earth. We ask all this, O Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.